Hi, uh, my name's Emma. Uh, Emma Leitz-Balecki, um, and I'm just glad to be here and to know so many familiar faces. Thanks for coming to my talk. Um, yeah, so I, um, if you have not surmised, I grew up in this church. Um, arrived here at age six. Up, oh, is that better? Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, and um, was invited to be a part of this um, symposium gathering uh, to speak about some of my more recent work. Um, so I currently work for Princeton Theological Seminary for a program called The Farminary. And uh, we were laughing about that because it, it made its way into the title but without any description. The Farminary is just a program of Princeton Theological Seminary and it's sort of a joke. It's farm plus seminary equals farminary. So that's exactly what it is. It's a, um, a seminary farm, uh, a campus farm. Um, and I'm currently working there as a fellow. Um, so Tyler and I live in Princeton, New Jersey. And um, I help to manage the farm space and get to work with students who are getting their MDiv or uh, any other like theological degree. Um, but yeah was um, hoping to talk a little bit today, both about that work and also uh, about food and faith more generally, um, and kind of what I've been up to since leaving First Prez, and um, also in the past kind of six or seven years, uh, we've been living on the East Coast, uh, doing work around these themes. So um, yeah, so the sessions on connections between theology and ecology, um, and specifically, my work is kind of centered in what some call the food and faith movement. Um, so I hope this session is informative, but also conversational. And I'll try to leave time for questions at the end. Um, and yeah, like I mentioned, it's really it's fun for me to be back here. Um, the I just kind of want to acknowledge how formational this church and this space has uh, been for me personally and how so many of the interests that I've sort of developed um, since have um, really kind of began here. Um, Tyler and I were married here. That's fun. <laughs> um, but yeah, so since um, being a really involved club kid and salt and light, um, things like that kind of um, began my own sort of theological journey um, from here left high school um, and went to college in Southern California um, at, a, at a school where I learned that theology was a discipline um, that could be studied. Um, and that, you know, was really exciting to me because, you know, <laughs> growing up in youth group, I was really interested in, in talking and learning about the Bible. Um, but uh, the, the kinds of questions that I was interested in, they found kind of different expression and different answers in a classroom setting, um, and that really, that really caught me. So um, kind of stuck with it. Um, you know, in terms of like how, you know, theology and food and ecology began to kind of come together for me, um, I also sort of acknowledge this place more broadly as being formational to that end. Um, I think about how prominent food is in Boulder culturally, um, how prominent landscape is in Boulder, and how kind of our, our landscape and our geography here really does a lot of work to form this community in really, really specific ways. And I really didn't see that as much until uh, kind of moving away and then coming back. Um, 
Yeah, and I also, you know, want to acknowledge that, like, our family roots in the Midwest were also, you know, ended up being uh, really important. So I remember countless drives between here and Iowa, specifically Davenport, <laughs> granddad, um, and kind of, you know, that transition from, from foothills to plains and um, kind of the, the sort of drastic difference in the uh, enormity of those food producing landscapes, the difference between rural and urban landscapes. Um, is always something I've, I've really kind of been interested in, um, and especially um, in the ways that they shape um, our sensibilities, religious sensibilities included. Um, so yeah, it was in, in college that I kind of started to um, move from seeing, uh, well, if in youth group I was kind of like prompted and, and able to ask um, deep questions about kind of the relationship between Christianity and, and my personal life and, and struggles <laughs> as a young person. Um, it was in college that I was sort of able to ask these questions um, kind of at the level of, you know, social problems, including um, environmental problems. Um, and so I think about also the way that growing up in Boulder, um, you know, there, there's like a really strong environmental sensibility early on. And I, I think, you know, as a young person growing up here, I didn't you know, realize how, at, at the time, how kind of defining um, climate change and environmental degradation would be um, for us as a society. Um, but I feel grateful that that kind of, you know, was brought to my attention at a really early age and has really shaped my thinking um, over the years. So, um, yeah, after uh, college, um, we moved to Durham, North Carolina, um, so I could attend divinity school. I went to Duke. Um, I studied concur concurrently in the School of the Environment there, um, studied uh, food policy and specifically like agricultural um, policy and food systems, um, learned about the connections between agriculture and um, different histories of oppression and marginalization based on class and race and gender and about, um, you know, the history of agriculture really as a history of um, injustice in this country. Um, and that's kind of continued to be sort of like the frame that informs uh, my work and my teaching. Um, after graduating from Duke, um, working a little bit um, with an organization called the World Food Policy Center, thinking about how food and faith conversations might figure in policy conversations more broadly. Uh, we moved up to New Jersey, which I mentioned already, um, so I could work for the Farminary program. And, and the Farminary is sort of a new program at Princeton Theological Seminary. Um, the, it sort of came about um, because the seminary had discovered that uh, they owned a 21-acre parcel of land that was two miles south of Princeton's campus. Um, and there were students who had an interest in thinking about the relationship between uh, small-scale regenerative agriculture and theological education. So as a person who had, I had both of these interests in me already, I was really drawn to this idea. Um, and so what that looks like in practice is we have a half acre garden where we grow vegetables and we have a 35 member CSA. Um, we do chickens for eggs and for meat. Um, and in all of that work, we include students who get to take classes out at the farm, um, have maybe like five classes out there per semester. Um, 
they help take care of the chickens. We have our chicken tenders. Um, <laughs> what else? <laughs> it's self-explanatory. <laughs> yeah. Uh, cool. So I'm bouncing around a little bit, but um, for you know, in all my work in the past kind of handful of years, we also spent some time in, in Michigan on a farm doing young adult education, um, working with churches, um, specifically Episcopal churches, thinking about um, innovative land uses um, and how church-owned property kind of figures in the life of church ministries. Um, I've kind of you know been in this world thinking about land and theology. Um, and, and food, specifically food as this kind of um, like connecting uh, bridge that um, might maybe um, heal some of the causes and consequences of disconnection that um, might maybe be at the root of some of our environmental crises today. So um, I'm going to talk a little bit uh, about like the different iterations of this work as I see them. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, creation care first. Uh, so, is it, I mean, does that word or series of words mean anything to people? I mean, creation care. Yeah. Did there? Do you want to say more about it? So the, I mean, this is a thing. This is like a movement in, in churches, and you know, it's extremely important. Oh yeah, how was it? Do you want to share a takeaway? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, I I'm really informed and inspired by an author, Willie James Jennings, who he writes in his book, uh, The Christian Imagination, uh, that Christian theologies of creation care are in crisis. Uh, they have overwhelmingly focused on ecological issues without learning how to think ecologically. Um, this is sort of like the comment I want to make about. Um, theologies of creation care broadly. Um, <laughs> I think that there's a lot of work to be done. Um, and I think, you know, while these, these steps to sort of mitigate, um, I don't know, to, to recycle, to change the light bulbs, things like that, um, are really important um, and actually are formative for, for religious communities. Um, I think the interesting work happens at a deeper level. Um, so like I talked about before, um, you know, how does reflecting on the ways that landscapes and theology shape and inform um, each other kind of like change the way we're doing creation care potentially? Um, 
what does it mean, kind of the fact that we're doing theology and seeking to know God um, on or inside landscapes that are fraught with stories of injustice, and should that concern us as Christians? Um, so on the language um, we use to define, define lands and environments, um, you know, studying environmental economics, you know, I became really familiar with this language of, of land and environments as natural resources. Um, but what this language does is it, is it gets us to think that, um, or <laughs> to kind of, um, I don't know, like approve of a relationship to creation that is like primarily consumptive and for, for the benefit of humans. Um, Though it turns out, you know, this kind of consumptive relationship is also somewhat to our demise. Um, and comparing this language of natural resources um, with the language that maybe Pope Francis uses to describe Earth in his encyclical Laudato Si as our sister, which implies, of course, that we're made of the same stuff as Earth, which is Adama, you know, the origin of the name Adam. Um, in a culture that conceives of Earth as a natural resource, the dominion verse in Genesis takes on an extractive overtone. But as biblical scholars will attest, this dominion probably meant something really different to the original hearers of the Genesis narrative, um, both whose capacities for environmental devastation and manipulation were nowhere near as dangerous as those that shape our lives today, um, but also whose lives were, you know, lived inside a completely different context um, and defined by pastoral experiences and sensibilities um, as the Bible emerges really from an agrarian world. Uh, also in Genesis, the instruction to till and to keep the earth would have meant something uh, much more similar to serve and protect. Um, and compare that, you know, this tillage language with the large-scale destruction of soil ecosystems at the hand of modern instruments of tillage used widely in industrial agriculture. Is this tilling and keeping what the Genesis narrative had in mind? Given the severity of the manifold environmental crises we face, um, and to varying degrees and of varying kinds based on our geography, I'm thinking of, you know, the fire the Marshall Fire that came through last year, um, the pressures of floodwaters where I now live in farm, sea level rise, extreme heat, soil degradation and erosion. How does our religious praxis, even our prayer, our statements about God, humans and their relationship, how do all of these adapt to a changing climate and a changing world? So, as I mentioned, but for the past couple of decades, church calls for creation care, uh, they felt a bit like Band-Aid solutions to deeper problems, um, and Band-Aids are important. It's all good work, but um, really the, the interesting work to me is sort of how do we reframe a renewed doctrine of creation, one that's up to the task before us. The question of creation, I mean, um, you know, what is creation? Where are we in it? And, and how does our thinking on creation uh, define and delimit our responsibilities? Um, 
and again, how are our theological and ecological sensibilities kind of formed in relation to one another? Um, so the question for me and for the many others I work with is how does environmental knowledge and action form and reform the people of God? Where do we see this in the work of food production in particular, uh, in growing food and preparing meals and sharing them? This work is embodied and it happens, it tends to happen in untraditional learning environments. So in gardens, I mentioned, you know, I work in the garden, at the farminary, at the table, in the kitchen. Um, and this can be powerful to those who have found themselves disconnected from the sources of their physical and material lives. Um, the power of a, a shared meal is to connect us to a wider community of interdependence. The food and faith movement is also inspired by um, ancient and kind of monastic sensibilities, uh, the way that action and contemplation kind of happen um, in reciprocity. Um, yeah, it's, it's not enough to just think about God, you know? You know what I mean? <laughs> um, the work that we do um, in the garden and at the table, it also enlivens new ways of understanding doctrines that are quite central to our faith. And I'm thinking here about the doctrine of the incarnation and resurrection. Um, these, are, these are things that you know we might talk about in a sermon or in a classroom, but they're things that we get to experience also. <laughs> in the garden and, and at the table. So, yeah, um, I'll just bring it down a, a notch and get a little more specific. Um, my, the work that I've been doing is primarily concerned with three groups of people who are all asking these similar kinds of questions. Um, church leaders who are seeking to find more responsible uses of church-owned land, um, young adults who are in the process of vocational discernment, and that includes the seminarians who I mentioned who I get to work with um, and are seeking to learn skills in preparation for innovative ministries, acknowledging that the church is really changing a lot right now, um, and their roles in ministry might look a lot different uh, than they would otherwise expect them to. Um, churches themselves are facing, you know, several existential threats, and I do want to acknowledge this, um, you know, not only climate change, as we've discussed, but also um, demographic change and, and shifts, um, aging congregations, political polarization. Um, so many mainline churches and denominations are having to close their doors. Um, and young people, if they want to remain in church at all, are, are looking for ways to kind of do church in a way that heals that disconnection that I talked about earlier. Um, asking how does the gospel really matter for a, a physically wounded and suffering world. Um, at the same time, churches are asking how can we respond to these big challenges uh, with the gifts and assets that we've been given in ways that heal the causes and consequences of this disconnection. So, okay, now I'm going to do my slides. Um, so I'm going to talk about church lands um, and faith lands. Um, these are two um, movements I've been kind of involved in with in supporting. Um, church lands has uh, 
become a ministry of the Episcopal Church, trying to connect church leaders who um, maybe have land and want to figure out ways to, to do something with their land, whether it's plant a garden or build an affordable housing development. Um, and um, even like lease land to, to farmers seeking land, you know, there are these big problems in farmland access, which um, you may or may not be aware of, but um, Faithlands is interested in, in thinking about how those two groups of people can get together to support each other. Um, and also how uh, religious communities can like rethink their theology in ways that support these uh, kinds of relationships. Um, so for a long time, churches have been involved in food aid, and you know, feeding our neighbor is imperative um, for Christians. Um, but now what I've noticed is churches are asking a lot more questions about the sources of that food, and even thinking about uh, ways they can contribute not just to food distribution, but also to food production. Um, and they're really framed um, using this kind of like asset-based community development model, uh, which is really about identifying where community needs and community assets, both tangible and intangible, overlap. Um, many churches have assets that can be instrumental to building more sustainable communities and more nourishing food systems, and that's not only land. Um, we did a big land assessment to see kind of where the, the acreage really was in the church. You know, churches get, get land, you know, bequeathed to them um, in trust, but they don't necessarily have, like, the, the bodies to manage it, so it's, it's this actually really interesting problem. Um, land is also being lost uh, to churches as, um, you know, we talked about churches are closing. Um, thinking of buildings as also an asset that the church has and could utilize um, to creative ends and in church kitchens too um, for, you know, food entrepreneurs. Um, there's been some work on that. Um, but yeah, I mean, beyond just sort of food production and thinking about how to kind of link these people up and create fair leases and um, figure out the legal side of things, um, it's also about integrating food and spirituality, as I've talked about already. Um, um, and it's, it's an interfaith collective, actually, of religious leaders who are um, joining these new sorts of food ministries to uh, renewed attention to the importance of place. Uh, thinking of land and soil as important to church ministry, thinking uh, more critically about neighborhood and how the place we are should define the ministry that we do. And I really see that happening in this church, uh, which is cool. Um, yeah, and thinking about, you know, the role of like church gardens and these inviting spaces that are not church buildings and might actually do the work to, to invite folks who wouldn't otherwise feel um, comfortable or loved in, in spaces um, that are more traditional. Um, what did I want to do? Oh, not every church has land, of course. Um, you know, we're an urban church here. Uh, but in general, church wealth and land ownership are correlated. Um, so we're asking, given the church's significant ownership of land assets, what kinds of responsibilities do churches have to their communities? Um, how is church land imagined as a participant in and for ministry? Is it merely a financial asset that supports the work of the church, or is it something more? Um, what happens when we consider land as a member of our church congregations, as both a recipient of ministry and also a participant 
and ministry. So when churches start asking these questions, they start to recognize how the ways we read and understand the gospel is already influenced by and also affects our relationship to place. Hmm. Yeah. So this is from um, Agrarian Trust, the Faithlands Toolkit, which you can um, download online if you're interested. And I wanted to share this story of one of our member congregations, uh, St. Peter's in Lebanon, Indiana. Um, it's a dwindling congregation, um, but a lot of land. Um, and what they've done with this land, they've actually refocused a lot of their attention from the sanctuary to, to the land itself, and it began with an apiary, so I'm picturing that here. Um, but they, they ended up, you know, feeling a conviction that, you know, they had this, this resource, this acreage that wasn't being um, used for anything, and at the same time, they knew that urban farmers in the city of Indianapolis were struggling to find access to land, and so what they did was... Um, create an agreement where this uh, black urban farmer cooperative um, was able to um, get a long-term lease on the property. Um, and now that church is, you know, a lot more interesting to its community. <laughs> you, know, it's, you know, it's not a lawn, it's a farm. And um, there have been a lot of people who have felt invited into that space as a result. Um, with church lands, we're also interested in inventorying um, land that's owned by the Episcopal Church. Um, and this was kind of one of their um, directives for this like last calendar year. They were really interested in asking what the actual land assets of the church were and now are kind of interested in thinking about how those assets can be um, enlisted in uh, efforts and soil carbon sequestration and um, carbon offsets, so that's kind of interesting. <laughs> um, all right, moving on. This is a map I created for um, a, a diocese. Um, this is a watershed map, but it's overlaid uh, with church parcels, so the churches can get a sense of what watershed they belong to, as opposed to just kind of thinking in terms of political borders, um, helping them to see that they belong to these these ecological um, communities as well. Um, I don't know if anyone's read like Watershed Discipleship, Ched Myers. Yeah, he's, yeah, inspiring. Um, so this is the, this is a picture of the farminary. Um, so you can kind of see that garage space is our classroom and students are sitting in there uh, listening to a lecture and that's me working by the tractor. <laughs> uh, yeah, so what to say about the farminary? The farminary is sort of one of many of these uh, initiatives that are, are growing out of um, spaces of theological education. So there's a farm at Princeton Theological Seminary. There's one at Duke Divinity School, there's one at the Methodist Theological Seminary of Ohio, and um, Baylor's 
Divinity School is also starting a farm. Um, and there's this the campus farm movement more broadly, um, which are kind of like interdisciplinary learning spaces where people can, uh, students can ask and answer research questions and work together. Um, but, you know, it's interesting when it happens at a seminary because it's not what you would think. You know, Princeton's not a land-grant school. So it can feel kind of random. Um, but I'll talk about the why. Um, so students at the farminary are getting to learn and experience that, that soil, creation, the earth, um, it's all alive. Um, and so I think about the, the way that we get to kind of understand and teach theological insights in a different way because our work is happening on the ground with the soil. Um, you know, you can describe the experience of eating a ripe cherry tomato in all its detail, but um, the, inf the information doesn't substitute for the experience of tasting, um, you know, kind of this taste and see idea. Um, some would call it maybe incarnational theology. Um, I'm also thinking about the compost we make at the farminary. Um, and how compost is kind of this really unique, interesting process, and it's actually, you know, ubiquitous. Like, it's compost is being made everywhere, you know, if you look for it. Um, but how compost and, and learning how to make good compost and tend compost um, is this way in which we get to kind of walk through together the transformation of death back into life in community. Um, and how that really changes, it changed for me, kind of the way I thought about resurrection. You know, not as something that's happening in the future, but about something that's happening kind of everywhere all the time. So what draws students to these learning environments? And it, it really does draw students. I mean, it's the most popular program at the seminary. About a third of the students who are enrolled are taking classes at the farminary at any given time. Um, the way I see it, it's, it's personal and vocational both. So personally, you know, I talked about this kind of longing to reweave these lost connections and do theological work that's embodied and responsive to environments that are nourishing but also constantly changing. And it's also vocational um, as we recognize um, the big shifts that are happening in our um, religious and church landscapes. So at the farminary, young people are searching for more or new ways to do pastoral ministry, pun intended, um, wanting to bring um, more hard skills into traditional ministry roles and think about, you know, how do we think about land management as also the role of a pastor, you know, who's like managing the building, but then also managing more than that, um, and wanting to kind of reimagine the location and life of that church in and for uh, communities. Uh, what is it? Can you, can you elaborate? I think for a lot of people here, um, we might not know what a seminary is. It's a oh, place where oh, good. pastors are trained and people hear sermons and things like that. <laughs> but, you, but what I heard you say is that it's a very popular course and it helps them to yeah. Uh huh. I think it's to form leaders for service in the church and world. But 
<laughs> that's, that's, this seminary is, you know, it's, I guess it was founded in 1812 um, as a Presbyterian seminary to train students preparing for ministry in the Presbyterian church. So um, a lot of students get an MDiv, which is what you need to be ordained in the church and to, to pastor a church. Um, but there are other degree programs offered nowadays uh, that are more kind of academically inclined. Um, so I think sort of the, the shift in theological education is that um, fewer and fewer students are kind of coming into the space wanting to do like a really traditional kind of like, um, or like sensing a really um, traditional kind of pastoral call. Um, and that's in part because those jobs, they don't exist in the same way anymore. Um, students are really encouraged to think about bivocational ministry. Um, so like being a pastor maybe part-time, but also working in your community. Um, and I hope I, I spoke to that a little bit, but how these big kinds of like existential threats the church is facing is really kind of like shaping students' responses and preparation um, for a changing ministry landscape. Does that make sense? Cool. Anybody else have a question? Well, that'd be great, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the importance of, like, working with and being responsive to young people in this conversation is that, like, you know, they're the future. So if, if they're not interested in the conversation, that's a bad sign, you know? I don't know. Um, I'm going to wrap up, I think. Go ahead. Yes. I know that you went to Lutheran and when you met in theology, and then you went to Princeton, which you worked in agricultural settings. How did this happen? Right? Yeah, no, Granddad and I have really interesting conversations because Granddad really deliberately left the farm, um, and then I am trying to undo that decision <laughs> in some ways. I do, yeah, yeah. And I also acknowledge the, you know, stark difference in context, like, you know, the farm you grew up on was, it's not a choice that you made, it was a, it was a kind of had to. Um, and agriculture is hard, it's still hard. It's a hard way to make a living. It's nearly impossible. Um, which is why it's so important that that work, if we value it as a society, be supported by these institutions um, that really do have, have the power to make it happen. I mean have the power to like equip me as a theological educator to also, you know, spend time learning how to farm. That's really, that's cool. Wendy?
Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I think that, um, you know, in youth group, I didn't really realize it, but, like, we were, we were doing theology in that setting, like, you know, in small groups. <laughs> I just didn't have a word for it at the time, so I think that that's kind of where my earliest, like, theological interest and training came from. Um, I don't know if others who, like, had experience in youth group would maybe say the same, but, um, yeah, and, I mean, as you know, like, I didn't grow up on a farm. We don't live on a farm. Um, well, now we do, but, um, yeah, I mean, for me, it was, it was kind of, like, following the questions, so first developing an interest in, in food and then kind of developing an interest in, you know, the environmental problems of agriculture and then um, kind of beginning to think more in terms of, like, systems and how, uh, you know, dominant forms of agriculture are, it's like a cultural phenomenon, you know. Um, Yeah, totally. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, it was always about eating. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, it's like magic, you know, to, to kind of like make that connection to, uh, to, to identify the source and to be able to provide your own food. I mean, I, I just find that really powerful and important for me personally. Um, I think that's a worthy pursuit in and of itself. I think that food production is like the most valuable, you know, community service. Um, yeah, and it's it's fun. I mean, I've like also had the gift of being taught by really excellent teachers um, who have made that work fun and engaging and have made the questions matter, um, have made me want to kind of think about how my life uh, build soil <laughs> as opposed to degrading soil. Um, does that answer your question? Life. Yeah, good question. Um, So uh, where our farm sits right now is in a floodplain, and then the, the land management history of that farm is it, it was a sod farm prior to becoming a vegetable farm. And so what that means is our topsoil uh, has been really degraded because harvesting sod also means harvesting topsoil. Um, and season after season, um, we had like basically none. Um, so in our context, Restorative agriculture is about building up that topsoil again through um, kind of simulating natural processes of soil formation, but accelerating them a lot. So we're thinking about how our action can kind of mimic natural ecosystems, like the way that soil would build up on the forest floor by the deposition of leaf litter and other kinds of organic matter. So in our farm, we use a lot of compost. Um, and then through kind of careful management, um, you know, if you're, if you're farming in a restorative way, um, you're thinking about kind of the relationship between like what you take and what you give and balancing that out. Um, so for every, you know, crop that we harvest, everything we eat from the farm, um, we need to return nutrients to the soil in kind. Um, and so we do that through um, different kinds of organic amendments. Um, 
but always kind of attentive to that relationship to make sure it's not overly extractive. Um, and then what we see kind of over time is that um, we get to, we build up soil structure in a way that makes the entire um, cultivated area actually much more productive than the native soil, which I find really interesting um, as an environmental idea. Um, you know, I, I think I was kind of schooled so much as a young person that, you know, our impact on the environment as humans is inherently destructive or negative. Um, and one thing that I really appreciated about learning the practice of regenerative or, or restorative agriculture is I think that, you know, it's this, it's this site where that narrative kind of breaks down. Like, um, it's a place where we can kind of witness the, the positive um, contributions that humans can make to the environment um, and the kind of like active engagement in forming those environments that um, we're really called to. Um, and so I think of like, you know, these words like care and soil and compost, is, they're like, you know, it, it's amendment, they're like noun verbs, and I like really want to kind of think with those, <laughs> like, um, like to make compost as an activity that like kind of defines human engagement with terrestrial ecosystems, um, and and land even as as kind of a verb as like a doing, um, and so when I think about like restorative agriculture, I'm I'm really interested in looking at those relationships. Yes. Hi. <laughs> yes. <laughs> cool. Who told you that? Did he tell you that? Um, yeah. <laughs> it's all good. Um, yeah. So I I had a you know a short term postgraduate fellowship at the seminary and it's coming to a close. So Tyler and I decided that we wanted to be closer to family. And so um, I have a job doing similar kinds of work in agricultural education in Salida. All that's left to figure out is where we're gonna live. Yeah, it's a big problem, right? Because it requires people. And anymore, the way that you know our communities are, are oriented and designed around land, it's like there's not enough people to do the work of restoration. Um, and the, the machines that we use for cultivation are designed at this massive scale, you know? Um, it's a good question. I mean, I'm really inspired by 
you know, prairie restoration projects and things like that, and thinking about how we can move from annual cropping systems to perennial cropping systems. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Land Institute, but they're doing a lot of work to that end in uh, Kansas. So there's people thinking about it for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Mom. Okay, so um, sure. <laughs> what my mother is referring to is um, last um, hurricane season uh, in Princeton, we were really impacted by Hurricane Ida, which actually hit um, the Louisiana coast first, but then picked up a lot of momentum as it traveled over land and ended up killing more people in New Jersey than any other state um, as roadways were flooded and things like that. Um, and so what happened on our farm is that we were under four feet of water, um, and we lost a lot of our chickens that we were raising, um, all of them, and uh, we lost our season um, in the garden as well um, because of concerns around contamination uh, that could have potentially been picked up from, from roadways as sort of we're thinking about you know, watersheds again um, and where those sources of contamination are in relation to the farm. So, so one kind of lesson that we, we took away is the importance of neighborliness and like you know, knowing who your neighbors are and knowing where you're located. I think before then, um, it was really easy for me to like think of the farm as this oasis in the middle of a uh, you know, really populated and industrialized area. Um, and then kind of learning through that experience that, um, you know, it really matters where we are for the kind of work that we're doing um, and the risks that we, you know, need to absorb, like, you know, are, are softened by community or exacerbated by the communities we exist within. Um, and then the other um, big takeaway for me was just um, reaffirming what I, I knew already, but the the reality that farmers are on the front lines of climate change, those who are attentive to seasonal patterns and, um, and, and land um, kind of recognize already that climate change is here um, and the, the real difficulty of adapting to those threats, which are numerous. Um, but yeah, again, I mean, if to make it theological that um, the impact of that was really lightened by uh, the community response in that situation. And so um, knowing our neighbors, knowing neighboring farmers who could help us recover um, and keep us fed uh, was really, um, for me, an important takeaway, even though it was hard to weather. <laughs> the question is out about embodiment and place. I, I don't know. I almost want to ask you the question. 
I don't know, what, what draws you to that idea? Yeah. 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 Um, well, my one of my professors, Norman Wurzba, says, you know, God is a gardener. Um, and so as we become gardeners, you know, we sort of, like, get to know God in a way that it's impossible to know God otherwise um, by kind of mimicking the work of God in the world. Um, and even performing the work of God in the world. Um, I mean, all of us are living embodied lives all the time, you know. Um, But for me, it's important to recognize the way that my movement through the world impacts the way I see and experience God. Um, But yeah, I mean, it is, I guess it comes from and out of, like, I guess the reason this idea is important to me and then to others like me um, is because we've lived for a long time not seeing that that has always been the case, if that makes sense. Um, Like doing, you know, religion with our eyes closed and um, in dark rooms and kind of like acting like God is somewhere else. Um, you know, hearing, hearing about God from these sort of, like, voices of authority who, um, you know, do have a lot to share um, and to say, but I'm really interested in the way that, you know, you know, as embodied individuals, each of us also, like, carry some kind of authority. We, we have access to a knowledge of God that um, is really right in front of us and right under our feet. Um, and finding God in those places. Um, I am really convinced that God um, deeply cares about the earth and the the state of the earth. Um, And so I I think for me, um, you know, that's where my praxis has to happen. Um, And I also think just kind of like more pragmatically, like, 
I've witnessed how, how important and disarming these kinds of like, you know, experiments in embodiment are, you know, like, you know, dinner churches, like doing, doing church, not, you know, in a church, but like around a dinner table and, and, you know, figuring out what, how that changes the conversation, you know, how, like when students are on their hands and knees planting seeds at the farm with their professors, like their conversations kind of take a different shape. Um, and they have access to this, this knowledge. It's not, you know, it's not hierarchical. It's not transmitted to them from above. It's not cerebral, but it's, you know, it's, it's felt. And then it's, I think it's, it's a lot more powerful. Um, it's carried with them in a more profound way. Sweet. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, in Europe. Yeah. I mean, I don't know the answer to that question, I'm sure. Um, I'm going to look into it now. I know about, like, the, the Glebland system, where, like, uh, parishioners would grow food for for the clergy. I don't know if that's what you're talking about. Um, but yeah, I mean, the Catholic Church is the largest landowner in the world. And so many of these properties are, you know, hundreds and hundreds of acres um, that a, a convent sits on. Um, and, you know, that land was initially designed to, to support the religious community. Um, but anymore, you know, rather than the religious community itself, or the convent, like farming the land, it's, it's leased um, for rent. And yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question. There's a legacy there that you point to that you're really right. Cheese. Have you heard about the cheese nuns? <laughs> Nice. I'm going to look that up too. Oh, yeah. Well, here, look, I have more slides, actually. Um, oh, this is, this is a farm. Oh, no, I didn't, I guess it didn't make its way in there. Um, my friend wrote an article in Christianity Today on farminaries, so you could try that. Um, you could try food and faith. Uh, faith Lands is the organization that I mentioned before. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's see. I guess that's it. So. Thanks, everybody.